Section thirty seven of Expository Thoughts on the Gospel of St. Mark by J. C. Ryle. Chapter nine, verses one to thirteen. Christ's Transfiguration. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Marianne. Mark, chapter nine, verses one to thirteen. And he said unto them, Verily I say unto you, that there be some of them that stand here which shall not taste of death till they have seen the kingdom of God come with power. And after six days Jesus taketh with him Peter, and James, and John, and leadeth them up into an high mountain, apart by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. And his raiment became shining, exceeding white as snow, so as no fuller on earth can white them. And there appeared unto them Elias with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter answered and said to Jesus, Master, it is good for us to be here, and let us make three tabernacles, one for thee, and one for Moses, and one for Elias. For he wist not what to say, for they were sore afraid. And there was a cloud that overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, saying, This is my beloved Son, hear him. And suddenly, when they had looked round about, they saw no man any more, save Jesus only with themselves. And as they came down from the mountain, he charged them that they should tell no man what things they had seen, till the Son of Man was risen from the dead. And they kept that saying with themselves, questioning one with another, what the rising from the dead should mean. And they asked him, saying, Why say the scribes that Elias must first come? And he answered and told them, Elias verily cometh first, and restoreth all things, and how it is written of the Son of Man that he must suffer many things, and be set at naught. But I say unto you, that Elias is indeed come, and they have done unto him whatsoever they listed, as it is written of him. The connection of this passage with the end of the last chapter ought never to be overlooked. Our Lord had been speaking of his own coming death and passion, of the necessity of self-denial, if men would be his disciples, of the need of losing our lives, if we would have them saved. But in the same breath he goes on to speak of his future kingdom and glory. He takes off the edge of his hard sayings by promising a sight of that glory to some of those who heard him. And in the history of the transfiguration, which is here recorded, we see that promise fulfilled. The first thing which demands our notice in these verses is the marvelous vision they contain of the glory which Christ and his people shall have at his second coming. There can be no doubt that this was one of the principal purposes of the transfiguration. It was meant to teach the disciples that though their Lord was lowly and poor in appearance now, he would one day appear in such royal majesty as became the Son of God. It was meant to teach them that when their master came the second time, his saints, like Moses and Elias, would appear with him. It was meant to remind them that though reviled and persecuted now, because they belonged to Christ, they would one day be clothed with honor and be partakers of their master's glory. Footnote. The analogy between the glory assumed by our Lord at his transfiguration and the glory which the saints shall receive at his resurrection is well pointed out by Victor Antiochinus in a passage quoted by Duvail, 
He says, quote, We must not suppose that there is to be any change of the natural form of man in the kingdom of heaven. For as the appearance of Christ was not in itself changed, but only illumined or glorified, so, also, the just who will be conformed to his glorious body will not be changed as to their outward form. Their bodies will only receive a certain ascension of splendor and light, which St. Paul calls a change. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 52. But the evangelists a transfiguration. End footnote. We have reason to thank God for this vision. We are often tempted to give up Christ's service because of the cross and affliction which it entails. We see few with us and many against us. We find our names cast out as evil and all manner of evil said of us because we believe and love the gospel. Year after year we see our companions in Christ's service removed by death and we feel as if we knew little about them except that they are gone into an unknown world and that we are left alone. All these things are trying to flesh and blood. No wonder that the faith of believers sometimes languishes and their eyes fail while they look for their hope. Let us see in the story of the Transfiguration a remedy for such doubting thoughts as these. The vision of the Holy Mount is a gracious pledge that glorious things are in store for the people of God. Their crucified Savior shall come again in power and great glory. His saints shall all come with him and are in safe keeping until that happy day. We may wait patiently. When Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then shall ye also appear with him in glory. Colossians chapter 3 verse 4 The second thing which demands our notice in this passage is the strong expression of the Apostle Peter when he saw his Lord transfigured. Master, he said, it is good for us to be here. No doubt there was much in this saying, which cannot be commended. It showed an ignorance of the purpose for which Jesus came into the world, to suffer and to die. It showed a forgetfulness of his brethren, who were not with him, and of the dark world, which so much needed his master's presence. Above all, the proposal which he made at the same time to build three tabernacles, for Moses, Elias, and Christ, showed a low view of his master's dignity, and implied that he did not know that a greater than Moses and Elias was there. In all these respects the Apostle's exclamation is not to be praised, but to be blamed. But having said this, let us not fail to remark what joy and happiness this glorious vision conferred on this warm-hearted disciple. Footnote. The remark of Brentius on the glorious nature of the whole vision of the Transfiguration is well worth quoting. Like most of that admirable commentator's expositions, it contains much in few words. Quote, no synod on earth was ever more gloriously attended than this. No assembly was ever more illustrious. Here is God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Ghost. Here are Moses and Elias, the chief of the prophets. Here are Peter, James, and John, the chief of the apostles. End quote. End footnote. Let us see in his fervent cry, It is good to be here, what comfort and consolation the sight of glory can give to a true believer. Let us look forward and try to form some idea of the pleasure which the saint shall experience 
when they shall at last meet the Lord Jesus at his second coming, and meet to part no more. A vision of a few minutes was sufficient to warm and stir Peter's heart. The sight of two saints in glory was so cheering and quickening that he would fain have enjoyed more of it. What then shall we say, when we see our Lord appear at the last day with all his saints? What shall we say, when we ourselves are allowed to share in his glory, and join the happy company, and feel that we shall go out no more from the joy of our Lord? These are questions that no man can answer. The happiness of that great day of gathering together is one that we cannot now conceive. The feelings of which Peter had a little foretaste will then be ours in full experience. We shall all say with one heart and one voice, when we see Christ and all his saints, It is good to be here. The last thing which demands our notice in this passage is the distinct testimony which it bears to Christ's office and dignity as the promised Messiah. We see this testimony first in the appearance of Moses and Elias, the representatives of the law and the prophets. They appear as witnesses that Jesus is he of whom they spoke in old times, and of whom they wrote that he would come. They disappear after a few minutes, and leave Jesus alone, as though they would show that they were only witnesses, and that our Master having come, the servants resigned to him the chief place. We see this testimony, secondly, in the miraculous voice from heaven, saying, This is my beloved Son, hear him. The same voice of God the Father, which was heard at our Lord's baptism, was heard once more at his transfiguration. On both occasions there was the same solemn declaration, This is my beloved Son. On this last occasion there was an addition of two most important words, Hear him. The whole conclusion of the vision was calculated to leave a lasting impression in the minds of the three disciples. It taught them in the most striking manner that their Lord was far above them and the prophets, as the master of the house is above the servants, and that they must in all things believe, follow, obey, trust, and hear him. Finally, the last words of the voice from heaven are words that should ever be before the minds of all true Christians. They should hear Christ. He is the great teacher. They that would be wise must learn of him. He is the light of the world. They that would not err must follow him. He is the head of the church. They that would be living members of his mystical body must ever look to him. The grand question that concerns us all is not so much what man says, or ministers say, what the church says, or what councils say, but what says Christ? Him let us hear. In him let us abide. On him let us lean. To him let us look. He and he only will never fail us, never disappoint us, and never lead us astray. Happy are they who know experimentally the meaning of the text, My sheep hear his voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. John chapter 10, verses 27 and 28 Footnote The coming of Elias, or Elijah, which forms the topic of conversation between our Lord and his disciples in the latter part of the passage now expounded, is a deep and mysterious subject. 
1. According to one class of interpreters, the ministry of John the Baptist was the coming of Elias. They considered that the prophecy of Malachi, Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 and 6, that Elijah the prophet should be sent before the great and dreadful day of the Lord, was completely accomplished in John the Baptist, and that no other coming of Elias is to be expected. This is the view maintained by the great majority of Protestant commentators, both English and foreign, from the time of the Reformation to the present day. 2. According to another class of interpreters, the literal coming of Elias is yet to take place. They consider that John the Baptist only went before our Lord in the spirit and power of Elias, Luke chapter 1, verse 17, and that the words of Malachi are yet to be fulfilled. This is the view maintained by nearly all the fathers, by the great majority of the Roman Catholic commentators, and by not a few modern Protestant divines, both English and Continental, at the present time. If I must express an opinion, when great and learned divines differ so widely, I must honestly confess that I decidedly incline to the second of the two interpretations above given. I believe that a literal appearing of Elijah the prophet before the second coming of Christ may be expected. Dark and incomprehensible as the subject is, the scriptural arguments in favor of this view appear to me unanswerable. Any other view seems to do violence to the plain meaning of the words of Malachi, chapter 4, verses 5 and 6, Matthew, chapter 17, verse 11, John, chapter 1, verse 21. There seems no reason why there should not be a double coming of Elias, the first, in spirit and power, when John the Baptist preached, the second, literal and in person, when he shall come at the end of the world, immediately before the great and dreadful day of the Lord. The whole question is undoubtedly surrounded with difficulties, whatever view we adopt. I can only say that after patient and calm investigation, I see much fewer difficulties in the way of the interpretation to which I lean than in the way of the other. I hold with Augustine, Jerome, Chrysostom, Hilary, Decenius, Brennius, Greswell, Alford, and Steer, that Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 and 6, is not yet completely fulfilled, and that Elijah the prophet will yet come. Those who can read Greek will find an interesting note on this subject in Kramer's Catena on St. Mark. End of footnote. End of section 37.